We worship and, and praise the Super. Let me begin by asking you if you have ever gotten in trouble because of something you said. Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> yeah, I can tell by all the chuckling that we all can relate to that. We've all been there. We've all apparently had these moments where we would love to hit the do-over button with regards to something that we've said. Well, today, church family, Jesus gets in trouble because of what he says. But he has no desire, no intentions of hitting the do-over button. He's going to stand behind what he says. I heard a story once about a, a hunter who was out in a really remote spot up in the Pacific Northwest, and He's out in the woods doing his camping, cooking over the fire, wilderness thing, when a wildlife game warden walks in on him. And the warden says, saw smoke from far away, thought I better check it out. Looks like you're you're doing okay. And the hunter says, yeah, I'm doing great. And the warden asks, by the way, what are you eating there? It looks like some kind of a bird. And the hunter says, well... Actually, it is a bird. It's a seagull. And the warden says, you shot a seagull in this area? These are a rare and protected species. My friend, that comes with a hefty fine. And the hunter pleads, oh, oh, warden, no, please. I I lost my way out here. I didn't bring enough food. And so I I took the bird. And as a matter of survival, honestly, that's that's what's going on. Please don't find me. Just... Just for one bird, I I was really hungry. And the warden thinks to himself, well, you know, this guy's in a tight spot apparently, out here in the middle of nowhere, dire situation, I get it. Okay, he says, sir, um, I'm going to let you go just this one time with a warning. I can see that you were in some trouble. And the hunter says, oh, thank you, thank you. I sure appreciate that very much. Well, the warden is just about to turn and leave when he pauses and he he says, uh, just out of curiosity, how does seagull taste? And the hunter thought for a moment and he says, you know, to me, it's somewhere between spotted owl and bald eagle. All of our nature lovers cringe in this moment, you know. Church family, our words can sometimes get us into trouble with others. And today, Jesus' words are going to do that. He really ticks off the religious leaders of Israel who are in Jerusalem because of the things that he says. Now, last week, we stepped into chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, part of our ongoing study series, verse by verse through this amazing book, a series we've titled Jesus, Know Him and Believe. So I'll invite you, if you aren't already there, to meet me in John chapter 5. If you need a Bible this morning, just let us know. We've got some in the back. We'll be glad to share a copy with you. There is a note page in your bulletin. looks like this. Grab that if you wouldn't mind. I think that'll be a help along the way. And if you didn't catch the announcement at the very beginning, uh, let's silence those cell phones as well. Now, 
you'll remember if you were with us last time that Jesus in this opening section of John 5 performs an amazing miracle. He heals a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years at the pools of Bethesda. John drew our attention to this miracle as one of seven that he's going to include in his gospel, primarily because these seven ultimately lead us to discovering more about Jesus. Jesus performs perhaps thousands of miracles, but John pulls out seven that he believes really show us things about Jesus that he wants us to know. And what, underfo- what unfolds after this miracle produces one of the most incredible, wonderful, powerful sections really in the entire gospel of John. It's verses 17 to 30. Jesus seizes upon a confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders that happens on the backside of the miracle to tell us things about himself that we absolutely need to know about him if we're going to confidently believe in him, put our faith in him, and receive eternal life through him. So Jesus heals this paralyzed man instantly of this this terrible affliction, commanding him then to take up his straw-filled mat that has literally been his home for 38 years lying beside the pools. And he tells him to to leave, to, to get away from the pool of Bethesda, get out of there carrying this mat under his arm. The only problem with this, which is really not a problem for Jesus at all, was that he tells him to do this on what day? Do you remember? The Sabbath day. That's right. And that was a serious breach of the rules according to strict Jewish religious practice. You don't do any work on the Sabbath, and carrying a bedroll under your arm was viewed as work. So the religious leaders who are the keepers of the rules jump all over this guy for breaking the rules. They don't care that he's just been liberated from a bodily prison of 38 years. They have no interest in entering into his joy, his exhilaration, no compassion. There's no celebration for the religious leaders, no desire whatsoever to know how this amazing miracle even happened. They don't care. It's all about the rules because it's religion towards God. It's not relationship with God. God for these guys. And there's a world of difference between those two things, right? Between religion towards God and relationship with God. Those are miles apart. Well, if you recall, the healed man eventually tells the religious leaders that it was Jesus who made him whole and told him to carry his bed. Well, now that they know that, Boy, these leaders turn their attention on Jesus and they can't wait to jump all over him. Verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And church family, this is why John includes this particular miracle, because it ushers in a whole new level of intensity of hatred toward Jesus by the Jewish religious leadership. And this hatred will ultimately take Jesus to the cross, won't it? 
It will ultimately have that end result. And of course, the cross is exactly where Jesus intends to go so that he can become our sacrificial savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is in complete control in this moment. He knows that things are about to get a whole lot more intense between himself and the religious leaders of Israel. My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to do what, church? Kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. And here it comes, man, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God with God. The religious leaders saw Jesus as a monstrous blasphemer of God. They would not even take God's name onto their lips, but would use a substitute word when referring to God. They so revered the name. Much less would they ever claim to be God. And here's this man, Jesus, asserting that he is equal with God. For this, oh man, he must die. This is a watershed moment in the unfolding story of Jesus. Again, it's why John includes it for us. Jesus' words get him in trouble, big trouble, but he's okay with that. But now the religious leaders, man, they are out for blood. They want Jesus dead. But rather than backing down and de-escalating this flashpoint, Jesus does the very opposite. He determines he's going to turn the volume way up. Now, like we said last week, he's about to pour gasoline on open flames, right? What he's going to do is use this moment on the backside of this miracle to reveal no less than six truths about his, his identity, who he is, and what his mission is. And brothers and sisters, these are some of the most majestic, glorious, grand, far-reaching claims that Jesus could possibly make, turning this particular section of John into one of the most high and holy places in all of the four Gospels, in my estimation. Because nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus speak so authoritatively and systematically about who he really is. We're going to know Jesus better when we walk out of here today because of what he tells us about himself here in this moment. So on your note page, Jesus essentially says, here's a few things that you should know about me. And in verses 18 to 30, Jesus makes six incredible claims. And by the way, when anyone seriously confronts these six claims, there will be one of two reactions. Either the person will react like the religious leaders do, angry, agitated, rejecting, refusing to have anything to do with Jesus, or they're going to fall at Jesus' feet and they're going to say, my Lord, my God. Be one of those two things. Reminds me of the famous quote by C.S. Lewis. We've shared it here before. You've probably read it elsewhere. C.S. Lewis, 
writes this. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not, let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. That's great. That's really accurate. Here are a few things you should know about me, Jesus says. Six great claims. Let's take each one of them as they come to us. We've already touched up against the first one. Jesus says, I am what? I'm equal with God. I'm equal with God. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now what you want to notice when you read verse 18 is that Jesus allows this conclusion that has been reached by the religious leaders to stand. He doesn't say, oh, oh, oh guys, no, no, I, I didn't mean for you to think that. I didn't. I wasn't really saying that I'm equal with God, that I was claiming equality with Him. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say that. They got it right. They heard Jesus correctly. They could see. They could hear by the way that He spoke about God as His Father. Evidently, there were sufficient indications of what He was saying and how He was saying it. They thought, man, this guy, he's gone over the top. This man really believes he's equal with God, that he's God. And any doubts that they may have had about whether they had arrived at the right conclusion or not are extinguished with what Jesus says next. Remember I said he throws gasoline on the flames? Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus says, in effect, I can only do what God would do. (laughs) Man, I'd love to have seen the faces of those religious leaders. In other words, we work in perfect union, perfect harmony, perfect synchronization with each other. The most revealing line is at the end of verse 19. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. This is way different from Jesus saying, that he chooses some of the things that God does, and he does those. He says, whatever the Father does, that's what I do. When the Father acts, Jesus acts. 
Without using these words, Jesus is really saying that the Father and the Son share the same essential divine nature. That's what he's really saying. We share the same nature. We move and we act in unison because we are one. Our natures are one. You remember John chapter 1, verse 1? Very first morning we stepped into this series. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm God. Now, I don't wish for us to kind of get sidetracked into the mystery of the Trinity, but church family, Jesus is affirming the Trinity here, isn't he? He really is. One God existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal in their attributes and in their essence. They cannot be divided. They cannot be separated. They are united together as one God. Someone says, you know, Tim, I really don't understand that. I don't understand the Trinity. And my response to that is, great. That's really good that you don't understand that. Because if you actually thought that you understood the Trinity, yours would be a flawed understanding. It would have to be. The infinite can never be fully taken in by the finite. That's why the Trinity will always be a mystery to us in some measure, even in heaven, won't it? It's always going to be a mystery. Three in one. Jesus says here to these religious leaders and by extension to us, I am equal with God. I stay in perfect step with the Father. The Father stays in perfect step with me. We act as one because we are one. That's huge. And then the second thing Jesus says that you need to know about him, he says, I am the giver of what? I'm the giver of life. I'm the giver of of life. Verse 21, verse 26. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Man, this is fantastic truth. Be sure that you notice that Jesus isn't saying here, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to give that life to other people. That's not what Jesus just said. Jesus is not saying the Father is the spring of life and I'm just the stream that flows out of him. Jesus is not saying that the Father is the source of life and I as the Son am just kind of the channel through which the life flows out. No way. As the Father has life in himself, the Son has life in himself. That's huge. Jesus is life's source, both physical and spiritual. Life comes from me, Jesus says, not just through me. It comes from me. That's big. We need to know that about Jesus. Now, we've already encountered this truth before. Again, on the very first morning that we stepped into the Gospel of John, we bumped up against this truth. Remember that? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In fact, church, let's just, all of us together, read this right off the screen. Would you do that with me? Let's do it together. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we say amen and amen. Jesus is the self-existing creative genius behind all that exists, wherever it exists. Nothing that lives derives its life apart from Jesus. That's what he says. George Whitfield, an evangelist during what historians refer to as the, the great spiritual awakening at the time of America's founding, he tells a story of once seeing two criminals who had been sentenced to death. They were riding bound in an open wagon that was taking them to the gallows. And this moment stuck in Whitfield's mind because these two condemned men in this wagon were arguing with one another about who got to sit where in the wagon as it made its way to the gallows. And that stuck with him. Can you imagine these two guys? I called the front seat. No, no, you sat in it last time. It's my time to sit in the front seat. Church family, I mean, the big question in this life is not who gets to ride shotgun in the hearse, right? That's not life's big question. The big question is this, who has the power to turn your impending death into eternal life? That's the question. That's the question. And that's why what Jesus says should arrest our thinking and stir our souls. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those whom He will. It's my call, Jesus says, because I have that authority residing in me because I am life. That's really big. Now, with that glorious truth laid out there for these religious leaders to consider, Jesus next brings some sobering and potentially horrific truth. Because Jesus next says, you should also know this about me. I am the final judge. Don't miss that about me. I am the final judge. Verses 22, 23, verse 27. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Jesus says, I am the final judge. Now, there is an ironic twist in this moment as it unfolds because who is Jesus saying these words to again? To the religious leaders, right? Religious leaders of of Israel who are doing what in this moment? They're judging Jesus. They're judging Jesus and telling them that he is worthy of death. They've passed judgment. They are judging the supreme judge of all living things and telling him that he is guilty. (laughs) That's scary. That's scary. 
Jesus first says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Reminding us once again of this perfect unity of oneness that exists between the Father and the Son. God the Father doesn't go off and do his own thing, judging mankind without Jesus. Doesn't work like that, Jesus says. The judgment in view here, church family, is a judgment unto life forever with God in heaven or a life separated from God forever in hell. That's the judgment that is in view. Jesus says that he's the judge who makes that final determination. And his judgment, he says, verse 23, is based solely upon what individual sinners have done with respect to him. This is big. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him and is worthy of judgment. If people honor Jesus for who he really is, God the Son, sent from God, fully man, fully God, who in perfect sinlessness dies in the sinner's place on a cross, rises from the dead as triumphant victor over sin, death, and the grave. If a sinner honors Jesus by believing this about him and personally puts their faith in him alone and in nothing else, well, then God as the Father is honored as well by that. Both are honored. Jesus is honored. The Father is honored equally because they're the same. But the opposite is also true. Reject the Son for who He really is. Cast aside His offering of forgiveness of sin and life in Him. And not only do you dishonor Jesus, but you equally dishonor the Father. And in such cases, Jesus no longer stands ready to be your Savior. He puts on these terrible robes as judge. What we make of Jesus, who we decide individually and personally that he's going to be in our lives, man, that decides our eternal destiny. This is big. This is eternally big. Now, one of the cool things about our Bibles, cool, Cool. You know, I'm going to use that word. Cool works. One of the cool things about our Bibles is that it is faithful to tell us what is coming. And in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we actually are given a window into what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 5. So let me put this up on the screen for us. And you can read along as I read for us. Now, This is actually going to happen when God's timetable for this age has reached its climax. Revelation chapter 20, last book of the Bible, almost the end of the last book, starting at verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who is that? That's Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. These are all those who have rejected Jesus in their life and died without faith in Jesus. That's who's standing before this great white throne 
If Jesus has been rejected as your Savior, the only criteria for judgment that is left is the life of the sinner, what they've done in their life. And so the books are opened. And what's going to be discovered is surely that life fell short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. It's a terrible moment. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's no good way to read that. That's awful. That's that's horrible. One writer summarized all of this, all of this that's on the screen, with this short but loaded statement saying, if Jesus is not good enough for you now, then you are not good enough for heaven then. That's really true. That is true. You should also know this about me, Jesus says. I am the final judge. And then Jesus says next in verse 24, you need to also know this about me, and I'm so glad this follows the the third one. You flip your note page over. You, know, you need to know this about me. I save all who believe in me. We should get a round of amen for that. You bet we should. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, in other words, Jesus says, I am God. I never lie. You can take this to the bank. You can pin your eternity on this. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Church, this is an incredible verse. A wonderful word from Jesus. And if verse 24 is not hidden in your heart, if you have not memorized this verse, boy, I would challenge you. This week, memorize John 5, 24. So that it will always be with you. It can never be taken from you. You'll always have it. In it, Jesus says that when we determine to believe that he is who he said he is, God, and that he did what he said he would do, die to pay a sin debt that we could never pay and rose from the dead, two amazing things happen, Jesus says. We not only will have eternal life, we already have it. That's truth number one. We already have it. It's not something out there. We have it right now. That's truth number one. Truth number two, we not only will not come into judgment and final condemnation and eternal separation that we just read about, we're not going to come into that, but we have already passed through it. Think about that. Think about that. We've already passed through that judgment. We're safe on the other side already. Jesus has become that judgment for us. When we're united with him by faith, his death becomes our death. His cross becomes our cross. His curse on the cross becomes our curse on the cross. And his resurrection becomes our resurrection. He pays the debt. We've already passed from death to life. We already have eternal life. Circle that word has in verse 24. It appears two times. 
Circle that word in your Bible so you never miss this again. Has passed from death to life. Has eternal life. Present tense with an ongoing effect. Good to know. Jesus, thank you. This is glorious news beyond all words, church. I I hope you can exult in this truth. You have eternal life. You have already passed through the judgment. That's why the Apostle Paul could exult in in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and say, There is therefore, what? Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No sentence of punishment hanging over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, not later. Be made radically confident by this truth. Be, Be made courageous by this truth. You have eternal life. Not judgment ever for you, ever. Thank you, Lord. Know that I'll save all who will believe in me. Then, truth number five, Jesus says, I will raise all of the dead. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is just another of these moments that can be wonderfully glorious or terribly frightening, depending on where you are with the person of Jesus in your life. First of all, notice who's going to be raised. Who's going to be raised, church? All? All? All. That's right. All. What does all mean? That means everyone, doesn't it? Everyone. Those who trust in Jesus unto eternal life are going to be raised. And those who've rejected Jesus to face eternal judgment, they're going to be raised. Jesus says, I'm going to do that. A time is coming because we have the rest of the book when there will be a great resurrection of the dead. Now, unfortunately, time's not going to let us unpack that very much. Jesus doesn't attempt to unpack it here either. The main point for us in this moment is that Jesus is declaring that he, he will be the one to raise from the dead all who have died, every person in the history of the world. He's going to raise them back to life. Now let that sink in for just a moment. He is going to raise from the dead all who have ever lived. Cool. Yeah. Billions, billions, billions of of people the Chinese and the Nigerians and the Indonesians and the Palestinians and the Germans and the Americans and every other nationality and race. He's going to raise Julius Caesar and he's going to raise Judas Iscariot and he's going to raise Isaiah the prophet and Michelangelo and Johann Sebastian Bach and Adolf Hitler and Princess Diana and Billy Graham and Kobe Bryant. Jesus will raise them from the dead 
and they will stand before him and he will raise you and he will raise me too unless we happen to be alive when Jesus returns to call the church out of the world as he says he will do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Don't you want to be alive when that moment happens? (laughs) I would love to be there. All these people, billions and billions and billions of all people without exception are going to be raised from the dead by Jesus. And by saying this, Jesus is really declaring in yet another way that he is infinitely superior to all things. All people superior to even death itself. And don't you know the religious leaders' hackles just went... Man, are they angry now. You have authority over death. He's universally sovereign. Jesus says over all human lives from all times. He says there's no life that ever ceases to exist at the point of physical death. You die physically, but you don't end. Every life is known and accounted for by Jesus. It's going to be brought back to life again. He's going to give existence to each dead person's decomposed body. There's going to be a point of connection, a a continuity between the body that we had and the body that will be raised. There's a mystery in there. I'll admit that. But he lets no one go out of existence. True for the believer, of course, but also true for the unbeliever. Jesus raises them all. And he does so with just a word, his voice. Now, someone notices that Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear his voice and rise. Jesus can say that because since he was in the world at that moment, resurrection power was in the world, wasn't it? It was here. It's here. Those religious leaders are looking into the face of resurrection power. Jesus will, in fact, perform some resurrections in his earthly ministry. We know this. Best known being that of Lazarus. Remember he raises Lazarus? John chapter 11. We'll get there someday. Someday. (laughs) Jesus, simply with a word, with a command, says, Lazarus, come out of that tomb. And he's been dead for four days. His body's broken down. It's decaying. It stinks. And he comes out, doesn't he? That's Jesus' resurrection power. And maybe a quick word about verses 28 and 29, just so that there's no confusion. Jesus says, All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Someone could read that and mistakenly think that Jesus is saying that you're saved by your good works. Is that possible? This church family knows that more than just a solitary no. Is that possible to be, to be saved by your good works? No. no. Do good, go to heaven. Do evil, go to hell. No. That's not what Jesus is saying. We're united to Jesus by grace through faith in his finished work, right? And we never add to that work. We never make it better. Jesus is actually declaring here that genuine faith produces good works. It produces works that are consistent with the will of God and with the heart of God. The Holy Spirit empowers us to these good works, and we can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit doing the good work in and through us. Jesus will actually say that in chapter 15 of John, verse 5. 
He'll say, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. So in this way, our good works become the evidence. They become the confirmation, the verification that the redeeming work of Jesus has borne fruit. Ours will be a resurrection unto life because of what Jesus has done, not what we have done. But for the unbelievers, since they reject Jesus, their works done in their own strength, their own flesh, that's all they have. And those works can never save. And so it's a resurrection unto judgment. But we don't want to end on that sad note. Jesus has told us so much. He concludes with this last piece of self-revelation. You need to know this about me. I am always doing God's will. I can't do anything on my own, he says in verse 30. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I can't do anything on my own, he says, ever. And this again takes us back up to verse 19, a declaration of the unity, the oneness that exists between the Father and the Son in terms of their nature and their will. It's just one more way that Jesus says, I am God. I can't do anything but the will of God because we share the same divine nature. What the Father does, the Son does. What the Son does, the Father does. They move in perfect cadence. They move in a a perfect, harmonious, unified dance because they're one. Here's a few things you should know about me, Jesus says. Six truths about my real identity and my mission. Jesus says, know these things about me and believe. Believe. So let me close with this true story. Do you know the do you know the story of the Titanic? You know that story? You saw the movie, right? The Titanic set sail on its maiden voyage, 1912, from Southampton, England, and it would stop at one place, Queensland, Ireland, for a brief stop before sailing all the way on. To New York. On board that maiden voyage from Southampton was a priest by the name of Father Brown who enjoyed as a hobby amateur photography. And so some of the last pictures that we have of the Titanic are ones that he took. Well, he sails to Queensland, and at that brief stop, he gets a telegram from his superior telling him to get off the boat, get back home, and get to work in the church. His calling is not to take a cruise. He's about to disembark when a wealthy American couple who had taken a likening to him offered to pay for a first-class ticket for him to sail all the way to New York City. Well, he declined their offer, saying, the church work calls me. It was only a few days later he receives a telegram about the Titanic's sinking with its terrible loss of life. He took the telegram and he folded it up and he put the telegram in his wallet and he kept it in his wallet the rest of his life. True story. And he did that, he said, as a reminder that because he put the things of God first, his life was spared. He put the things of God first and his life was spared. 
Have you ever heard the, the expression, going first class on the Titanic? You ever heard that phrase? Going first class on the Titanic. Church family, there are a lot of people in our world, a lot of people in our country. There are a lot of people here in Idlewild who, in fact, are traveling first class on the Titanic spiritually. They don't even know it. They are headed for eternal destruction, headed for an appearance before the supreme judge because they've refused to put the things of God first in their life. They have refused to put Jesus first. And unless something intervenes, theirs is going to be a resurrection unto judgment. Not unto life, but unto judgment. Now, if you're in this room today and you have not settled the question of who Jesus Christ is in your life, I would submit to you that you are carrying a first-class ticket on the Titanic. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who's he going to be in your life? Is he going to be something over here on the side? Or is he going to be your Lord and your Savior? And if you've settled the question of who Jesus is in your life, then perhaps it's your neighbor who lives next door to you who's carrying that first-class ticket. Or maybe it's one of your family members. Maybe it's somebody that you work with every single day you go off to your job. We all know people right now who have one-way first-class tickets on the Titanic. But here's the good news. Here's the great news. Jesus says in John 5, 24, I am the lifeboat. Right? I am the lifeboat. You're holding a a first class ticket on the Titanic and I am the lifeboat. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And we say, Amen and Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you for the feast today. Jesus, you have shown us so much about yourself in this Short little section. We've barely touched the surface of it, but thank you for letting us touch the surface today. There is so much for us to turn over and and meditate on this week and take these truths and take them to a deeper place. Help us do that. Father, if there is anybody in this room today who's carrying that, that, that first class ticket, oh, Lord, Talk to them, speak into their heart, break into their world and show them the real Jesus today. May they not leave here without life. They can have life. You can have life if that be you. Don't leave today without Jesus. For those of us who know Jesus, let's take him out to to Idlewild. Heavenly Father, make it so for your glory. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together, church.